Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. The other day as I was driving along and um, passing all the cars on the road and so many of the cars these days um, look look so similar um, uh, to me anyway and I have a, a bit of an interest in, in cars and, and particularly cars of the 30s, 40s, 50s and, and 60s. I think there were some very interesting designs came out in those years. And then I, my thoughts just ran, as they were rambling on, rambled to all the, the plastic that is used in cars these days. And you know, I'd been talking to a mechanic recently, you know, even mud guards and these sort of parts and, and the bumper bars and these sort of things are, are made of plastic. And I was thinking, so much is made of plastic. Our clothes are made of plastic and, and so forth. And then I happened to read another article which talked about that uh, by some particular date, not too far away, maybe uh, 2050, something like that, that there would be more plastic in the oceans than fish. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, we're, we're just producing so much of, of this material. And then as I was driving through the, the country at the time, thinking all these random thoughts that were just coming into my mind, I was thinking about all the trees and all the trees around me and I was thinking, you know, wood is such a versatile material to build things out of. Now, we don't make cars out of wood, but um, I once did uh, own a car that had the, the frame for the uh, bodywork was actually made out of uh, timber and then it had aluminium bodywork and that aluminium bodywork had been... Uh, made by a coach builder over the uh, wooden frame. And, um, of course, you know, I guess steel is the most appropriate material for, for cars. But it made me think about wood and the versatility of, of wood and the number of uses of timber, the amazing uh, properties of uh, timber. I lived in uh, Tasmania for a while and down in that particular state of Australia they have some of the tallest trees in Australia um, and uh, they're probably some of them are among the mountain ash trees I think uh, amongst uh, some of the tallest trees that grow in the in the world and these trees grow to hundreds of feet high and you know, it, it's just amazing. This tree grows so high and it's relatively stable and it produces a huge amount of forage. And then, of course, some of the other trees, when I go on my walk, there's some Morton Bay figs and uh, trees. And some of these trees can have a huge canopy and cover a, a huge area. And then, of course, in uh, Tasmania, we had the, the famous Huon pine, which is a timber that is uh, quite an oily uh, timber and hence resistant to attack by the Toledo worm and some of the other little um, burrowing uh, worms that uh, can attack timber boats. Uh, but it also is a, a beautiful timber to cut. It, it's very fine-grained and sometimes it can have beautiful patterns. I know my oldest daughter has made some beautiful furniture out of wood that um, we uh, brought back uh, when I had a licence one time when she would have been only about, uh, well, 12 years, 10, 11, 12 years of age. 
and we kept it for years. And then uh, later, uh, she um, used to build some beautiful timber because of the patterns in it. And wood has such interest that property, so we can build all these things. Some of it is very strong, so we can build bridges and and uh, you know carry a lot of uh, force and weight on timber piers. We have timbers that can you know last in the ocean for ages. We can build boats out of it, and then we can make decorative furniture, and it has insulative properties. Uh, all, and there's so many different timbers and they had different patterns and different properties like the hewn pine was resistant to rot and corrosion and other timbers like balsa timber are so light we could build model planes out of them. But then recently too I um, came across a, an article by a, um, a scientist, uh, uh, Joseph Harville and... Um, he uh, was uh, for a while director of research and planning for the Department of Conservation and Land Management in Western Australia. And um, he's done a lot of uh, research in forestry uh, around um, uh, the, uh, the world, different parts of the world as well as Australia. And it was a very, very interesting article. Um, this scientist is a, is a Christian and he uh, points out the fact that uh, trees are often um, uh, referred to in different ways in the, in the Bible. For example, he, he talks about how Psalm 1 compares a man who bases his life on God's law to a tree growing close to streams of water. Uh, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. So I think also, too, sometimes we hear people talking about having a tree change. In other words, they leave the cities and go and live in the countryside where there's lots of uh, trees. It's quite um, interesting when I, I think about the amazing design of trees and their structures, and he... He writes in um, this particular article, uh, which he titled uh, Trees, God's Creative Power on Display. And you could probably read this article, the full article, in uh, creation.com. If you Googled creation.com and probably did a search on trees, it would probably come up. But um, I found he, he, he used a very interesting illustration because he, he writes, to help demonstrate the... Um, design, the, the trees are powerful evidence for supernatural design. He says, um, compare a tree with a skyscraper. Um, and skyscrapers, of course, often seen as examples of, of human achievement. You know, in some of these countries, you know, the build, we read about this is the highest building in this particular continent and so forth or in this particular country. But he points out the skyscraper begins with a plan compiled by a team of architects and engineers. And even the very largest of trees begins with a tiny seed. And some of these seeds are no bigger than a pinhead. But in that tiny little seed is crammed complex programmed information that controls the development into a giant living organism the tree and so is a code so and he then you know uses the illustration if you think of a skyscraper it takes you know truckloads of material 
such as cement and sand and steel, all have to be brought to the site to build the skyscraper. But the tree accomplishes this build-up of its body, um, the root system, the trunk and the crown, on site just by utilising the raw materials surrounding it. So it uses water delivered by the, the rain or, or, or from underground water uh, coming. It uses the carbon dioxide that is present in the air and oxygen um, from the surrounding air. And, of course, trees produce oxygen. Um, and the nutrients that have been dispersed through the soil in the ground around its, its roots. And remember that tree, when that tiny little seed starts off and it shoots, little shoot comes out and begins to root, and then from that tiny little seed and those tiny, tiny little shoot, a huge tree can grow. Now, when you think about building a, a skyscraper, you know, you've got to have energy to run the cement mixes. You know, either they've got to use petrol energy from... Um, you know, fossil fuel or uh, electrical energy, often generated by fossil fuel or, or nuclear power. And um, then there's all the human energy that humans get from eating food to sort of then lay the bricks and pour the concrete and weld the uh, steel frame and so forth. Whereas in the case of the tree, the tree uses energy trapped by the sun by special organs in the trees called leaves. So when that little seed pops out, it already has information programmed. It has a little reserve of energy and chemicals and it produces its own little solar energy uh, caption device, a leaf. And so that first little shoot, that first little green leaf comes out. It then begins to capture the sun's energy and use that. And um, the um, you know Dr. Havel uh, points out that the small green and mostly flat leathery structures contain thousands of minute but highly sophisticated factories capable of capturing the solar energy and then converting it into the energy rich substances you know the the carbohydrates and I think I've talked about in uh, earlier talks about the amazing photosystem too that is in plants. Look up, if you Google Photosystem 2, it's amazing structure in plants that scientists are still trying to work out exactly how it works. So, um, when I was last reviewing the literature in this area, they were still uncertain how the water molecules are trapped in this little machine that actually converts the solar energy um, and uses the solar energy to split water into hydrogen um, and oxygen, some of the oxygen's released and the hydrogen is then combined with carbon dioxide to produce sugars and carbohydrates which then help build the tree's structure, build its body and also provide energy. And, you know, this process that we call photosynthesis that's in that little tree is um, really far superior and... Um, uh, uh, Dr. Havel talks about this as well. He says, it's far superior to similar efforts that mankind with all our universities and research institutes has achieved so far. 
It utilises complex organic compounds and structures so miniaturised as to be invisible to the unaided eye to produce high-energy sugars. You know, and when you think that evolutionists believe that this system totally arose by chance, I mean, how could the first system arise? How could the first system arise to capture this energy? How could it evolve to do that? Where would it get its energy from? And so, you know, there's so much evidence that evolution is absolutely impossible that these amazing machines that we call trees that provide so much and such a versatile building and construction material for us, for humans to use. You know, we build houses out of it. I know the first house that, um, well, the only house that I built actually framed it. Um, I had uh, lived in a little village of um, in Tasmania where there was uh, a lot of, uh, there were timber mills and um, you know, the, the timber was cut from a local tree and milled into the particular boards that I needed to to build the frame. It's interesting that um, the versatility of the, the timber, I remember, that you could nail it and it was so strong, it could bear so much weight, and yet it was so easy uh, to work. And of course, I've seen programs too where um, you know, previously they would often build houses without using nails. They would just uh, cut these little beveled um, type of uh, slots um, and uh, use different pins. And I forget the technical, the carpentry name for this particular building method, but without using any nails, you could build the frame of the house. And they were very strong. And uh, I remember watching a, a program where they restructured a house that had been pulled to pieces and moved and then put it back together many years later. And, um, of course, trees uh, fix this carbon dioxide. Um, one of the waste products that you know, a lot of people are very concerned about today is we're burning so much fossil fuels. Again, uh, trees deal with this waste product uh, so efficiently and in return uh, generate oxygen. I guess that's why I'm such a fan of uh, trees. Um, I love trees and the different varieties of trees and the the flowering trees. It's interesting that the tree uh, structure um, is, um, again, you know, just in my view, amazing evidence of of design. So the... um, the oxygen, for example, in the leaves are um, released through little access pores, um, and these are the same pores that the carbon dioxide has actually taken in to the leaf. And the crown of the tree, or that the top of the tree that has all of the leaves on the smaller branches, is, uh, and we see that design, the, the curve there, designed to give the leaves maximum exposure to the sun. And um, every little photosynthesis cell in the leaves is connected to the rest of the tree by minute conducting channels. And uh, there's one set of channels called xylem and that conducts water and dissolved chemicals upwards from the roots to the leaves. And the other set called phloem, uh, P-H-L-O-E-M, conducts the sugars produced in the leaves downward to the roots. And both... um, 
Both types are formed within the tree from the sugars generated from the sunlight and then reconstituted into strong and more stable substances called cellulose and linden. So when you think about, again, the design for all these little structures, all these little channels that carry these um, different compounds, the water up um, and uh, the dissolved uh, chemicals that are needed from the root system up, and then the others, the sugar and energy fuel for growing the tree down. And um, it's interesting, the xylem also has a structural uh, function. It uh, helps give the tree branches and the trunk their strength so that they can support the weight of the crown. And it, these, uh, these little uh, uh, the xylem, these little channels that construct the water, um, also give the trunk of the tree the strength so it can support the weight of the leaves and also its stiffness so it's not just easily pushed over. When you compare this with a skyscraper, the, the structure of a skyscraper is very rigid. So most human constructions of concrete and steel aren't flexible, but um, the, um, the stiffness in a tree is actually flexible, enables uh, its tree to bend a little bit and then regain its shape when, um, the, say, a strong wind uh, stops. Um, the phlegm as well um, has a couple of functions, so as well as con- conducting the flow of sugars downward, um, it uh, protects the soft parts of the tree where new tissues are, are forming. So it acts as an outer shield against mechanical and uh, also fire damage. And um, I've often been fascinated by the root system of trees, having had to dig out a few trees. <laughs> they can be hard work. Um, the root system of a tree also has uh, dual function, so it fairly obviously anchors it into the soil, and it, um, but it also extracts water and nutrients from the soil. And um, so when it rains, some of the water directly enters through the leaf surfaces, uh, but of course most ends up in the ground, so a tree needs to get uh, the water out of the ground. And so roots actively actually search, I guess they grow towards moister areas, and um, they um, uh, collect that water uh, so that it can be utilised by the tree. The other thing, of course, is that uh, tree roots protect the soil from erosion. Um, and in non-frozen soil, tree roots are continually growing and they respond to uh, stimuli to grow downwards and towards moisture. Um, and apparently fungi and bacteria in the soil um, also play a role working with the tree roots to maximise the uptake of nutrients. Uh, so that's why, uh, you know, mulching trees um, is, um, you know, not only protects the tree when you're growing fruit trees in the garden or, or even ornamental trees for that matter. Um, they uh, Mulching, of course, protects them from uh, water loss in the soil so much so there's more water for the tree, but they, um, it also encourages the, uh, the fungi and bacteria to grow 
Uh, and, and so, you know, and there's a, a whole synergy there that preserves the health of the soil. You know, one of the things that's often fascinated me is the fact that when you see um, uh, a tree maybe, you know, 100 metres tall, 300 feet high, some of the tallest trees are, the water has to be raised against gravity that high. And um, so when you think about it, one atmosphere pressure is equivalent to about uh, 34 feet um, or about 10 metres. And so trees um, actually get around this with a, quite an ingenious uh, combination of um, cell, cellular processes. Um, and so when you think about it, for this, you know, uh, for the whole codes to develop, to produce these, um, the function of a tree, to me, it's just overwhelming evidence for design. There had to be a designer. Um, for And when we think of all the different varieties of trees, all with their different genetic codes. And we also have to remember that the codes are, are nothing like what the tree looks like itself. It's a, it's a code, just like we were, write the word in English, T-R-E-E, -E, uh, for tree. That doesn't look anything like a tree. It's a code that our mind translates to generate in our mind a picture of a tree. And so all these aspects of the tree are in this code. For me, trees that are all around us are such powerful evidence of um, creation, you know, another one that I was uh, came across uh, just recently too, another um, aspect, and I was uh, reading a, an article about uh, shrimp or, or prawns or lobster. In Tasmania, I used to catch a lot of crayfish down there, and um, I've only just learned that they're decapods, ten-legged uh, crustaceans, lobster, shrimp, crayfish. But one of the fascinating things is that they have amazing eyes. So our eyes use lenses to focus light by refraction and bending. But these decapods used mirrors to reflect the light to a focus. And shrimps that live down at huge depths where there's not much light have an amazing design involving photonic crystals or nanostructures that can manipulate light at the different wavelength levels. And I guess this is at the opposite end of the spectrum of trees, but because we've got trees on the mountains high up, we've got the shrimp that live right down at the bottom of the, of the ocean there. And it's interesting that researchers have really only relatively recently um, analysed their eyes. There was a, an amazing article that came out in Nature Nanotechnology back on the 13th of January in 2020. And um, when they looked at this, uh, they studied the eyes of uh, the white-legged shrimp. They found that the mirror comprises of an array of nanospheres of an average diameter of 330 nanometers, so it's smaller than the wavelength of visible light. And these were packed into a, re a regular pattern and that was wrapped around the bottom half of the light receptor. Now, and these spheres were made up of eight to ten little concentric thin layers totaling 
about 70 nanometres of shell thickness surrounding a, a, a hollow core. Um, and um, these layers were formed of plates of a chemical compound called uh, isoxanthoterin. Um, and um, this is uh, quite an interesting substance because these spheres have a property called biofringence. That means double refraction, where the amount of bending or the light or the refractive index varies with the direction. And in actual fact, along the circumference of this particular material, it's got a refractive index of 1.96, which is one of the highest refractive indexes of any biological material. And it turns out that this material is just ideal, just absolutely perfect for reflecting light. And what it means is that these creatures that live right down the bottom part of the ocean where there's not much light get the maximum amount of light. And it's fascinating, you see, because this is another thing, just like our skyscrapers with all our engineering and planning, in my view, can't compare with a tree that, again, builds itself in the location and is self-replicating. So, you know, skyscrapers aren't self-replicating. But here, the we, again, in this humble little shrimp, you know, that people think, you know, very, you know, sort of just a simple little creature down there. But its eyes are just so amazing and just perfectly designed and right for the job. And um, the, you know, some of the researchers in the article uh, refer to the genius of the shrimp solution of using this bifringent material. And, uh, of course, the usual scenario is that this thing evolved over millions of years. But when you think about it, it's got to be in the DNA code. The DNA code has to use enzymes to make isoxanthopterin, uh, uh, the compound that these lenses are made out of. You know, the more and more that we look at these things... Um, they're, they're so amazing. As a matter of fact, this particular article on the design of the eyes, the researchers concluded this in their paper. They concluded this system offers inspiration for the design of photonic crystals constructed from spherically sim symmetric bifringent particles for the use in ultra-thin reflectives and as non-iridescent pigments. In other words, the scientists study this we come up with new ideas. So we weren't able to invent something like this with all our intelligence, and yet we assume that random blind, man, you know, random mutations to DNA produce this in just the right creature that just needed this in its DNA. I think it's pretty obvious that there is overwhelming evidence for a supernatural creator behind all the living systems we experience, and details of that creator are found in the Bible the book that has been so substantiated by archaeology and history. And I, I think it's just so amazing, the evidence we have for a supernatural creator. And, of course, the Bible tells us that this creator loves us very much and came to earth as Jesus Christ. You've been listening to Faith and Science. I'm Dr John Ashton. And remember, if you want to re-listen to this program, just Google 3ABN Australia or one word, .org, .au, and click on the listen button. Have a great day.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.